Paul. You're welcome. Nice to chat. Um, I, you know, we've been friends for a long time now, and I, we've been walking on the beach every couple of weeks and having a chat. You've been a really good friend and mentor to me for many years. And I just thought it'd be nice to have a few leadership conversations because I get so much value from the conversations that we have informally walking mm -hmm. up and down Long Reef Beach there. And I thought it'd be nice to record a few and, and see if, if anybody else might enjoy them. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the area I thought we might explore today is this idea of leading from the middle. So we're often working with people who are sitting between you know, the top level leadership, which may or may not be effect, an effective group of leaders and managing people uh, who report into them. And it's a, it's a tough spot to be in. So I thought we might explore that area if, if you'd like sure. to. Sure, because um, even as you mentioned it, just by coincidence, this morning when I was walking along the beach, I was, I was reflecting. I think I might have been thinking about um, you know, the fact that we were going to chat later today. Um, and I remembered something which was one of the earliest pieces of information that was drilled into me as a trainer in West, in what was then Bank of New South Wales training. And in one of our customer service programs, it began with this tagline. The session began with, you need to understand that people do things for their reasons, not ours, always. And that opened up the conversation with the group that we were training. And the intent of that was to recognize or to help us all recognize that people do, in fact, even if they don't acknowledge it, they'll act based on their own reasons. And to sort of take that to its end point, someone said in the conversation, but what about altruists? They're doing it for the, you know, for the greater good and all of that. But the more we tease that out, the more we realize that the altruist was still doing it very much for a personal reason, even if it was merely something to do with an intrinsic value to them. And yes, the outside world looks at it as though they're doing things for everyone else. But the truth is that they're doing it for their reasons. And the, the power of that was to understand that even when you think you're coercing a person into doing something, they, they'll either do it or they won't. And either of those two choices will be for their reasons. And if they can understand that, if you can help them understand that, then you and they might be able to get on a better footing. So that was the one thought that came from the positioning you did just then. And the other was, again, from my early days, we used to run a supervisor program and in it, we had a, back then, this is so far back, it was a 16 millimeter film. And it was actually, it was an Australian film that was made for um, learning environments. And it was called Stephen Banner Supervisor. I don't know if it'll be in Google land anyway, but anyway, mm. that's what it was called. And Stephen Banner was one of these people who basically was put in a supervisory position looking after, and he would have been one of those mid-tier managers, right? So uh, had people in his team, he was, um, or he might have been a, a first level supervisor. Um, and then he had plenty of people senior to him. So he was always writing to other people's instructions, essentially. And in the context of the film, Stephen Banner walks into what is his new office environment 
and it literally is a dungeon in the bottom of a building, like no natural light, just horrible conditions. And he looks at it and he's so despondent as to how can I make this a good place for my people to work? And in the context of the movie, he's actually attending a supervisor course. And so when he goes to the next session, he challenges his facilitator or instructor by saying, this is all well and good, um, but how can I do anything to make my pe people feel better when we're working in such terrible conditions? And the line out of that movie, which resonated then throughout the course, was uh, the, super, the instructor's comment to Stephen Banner was, Stephen, you might have the worst, but you don't have to make the worst of it. And they then talked about, so what can I do uh, to make this a more productive environment for myself and my team? And of course, they discovered, you know, bringing flowers in or bringing plants in and all of that made the area much more appealing, even though it was still a pretty horrible workspace. Um, and that program went on to challenge first time supervisors and middle managers that all through your working life, someone else is gonna be in control of the big game. But when it comes to you working with your people, how do you translate that into something that works well for you and your team? Um, and it actually said, and by the way, if you think the MD of the company is free of this challenge, he's not, he's got a board and yeah. they're giving him instructions and he's got to come out. And then it led to the group having a conversation about uh, when you think about an MD who's relaying a message from the board, from their personal experience, what made it more effective? And cut a long story short, it always came down to if the boss is using his bosses as an excuse for doing what he's doing, that was never a successful strategy. In fact, when the team talked about it, they, they realized they'd lost disrespect or they lost respect for their boss because he was essentially saying to them, I'm on your side, but hey, what can I do? I'm, yeah. Just, a, yeah, I'm just a minion too. And so instead of feeling that they were all on the one side, the team looked at that as weakness. Um, well, what, if I go back, what was this, the statement from the movie again? You might have the worst condition. You might have the worst, but you don't have to make the worst of it. You might have the worst, but you don't have to make the worst of it. Yeah. That's really useful. Um, often, let me let me play a bit of devil's advocate on that, and maybe we could work to just talk about some real examples, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I've been in rooms with leaders before where I've put something like that forward, and I've been met with quite a high level of disdain and resistance. Yeah. You know, this kind of, oh, you don't understand how bad it is. Like, my, you know, I can't do anything. My boss is so controlling and you know, or this person or that person or the KPIs or, you know, there's a whole load of reasons why this is the worst situation, yeah, right? Yeah. So it, practically, and I empathize with that, you know, some people I've been in, I've been in positions where it's been a really, really challenging relationship with my, with the person I'm reporting to. And that's a hard message to hear and to accept. What, what would you say about that? So there are a couple of things I'd say on that. Number one is that if you're going to lead for the benefit of your people, 
then you're going to have to have courage. And that courage means you're going to have to at times challenge your own boss to say, that sounds like an instruction. And if it's an instruction, it's not one I can easily take to my people because I don't buy it. Right? So either help me get it or I'll take your message, but no one's going to, no one's going to you know, willingly do it. Um, and I've done that. And I've had a boss say to me, you know what? I don't know what the reason is. My boss just told me this is what we had to do. And I just said to my boss, I'm sorry, mate, you're going to have to go back and ask him. And I don't care what the answer is. I just need to know what the answer is. Um, and so there are a couple of examples where I've seen. So once, again, very early in my working life, I was tagged as a problem employee <laughs> by, by my existing manager. And his, I, I get it completely. I was working in a bank. I was completely the wrong person that, to do that kind of work in a bank. I dressed like, you know, a disco disco freak and I had long hair and I wore body shirts that were see-through. And so my existing boss, who was a very conservative banker, just had trouble with me. And to add to his misery, I was terrible at banking. You know, I just was couldn't balance a cash register or any of those things because I was too busy enjoying talking to customers. And so back in those days, luckily for me, they didn't sack people. They just moved you around to become someone else's problem. And I got transferred to a branch here on the Northern Beaches. And when I walked into the, and so this story is really about how does a leader take the rules of the game, but use them in a way that works for his team, but also gives the organization what they want, right? Mm. It's about understanding, understanding, I guess modern language would be understanding the metrics and what are the metrics that matter to the organization. Uh, so this guy, his name was Peter. And he, um, so I walked into his branch on my first day, knowing that I'd been sent there because I was on this merry-go-round of someone, you know. And in the bank, we used to say, when it gets bad enough, they'll shift you off to the mail room, which is in the bowels of a building somewhere, and you'll never see the light of day. Um, and so I walked into this branch on the northern beaches and um, got greeted by the staff, said who I was, and they said, oh, I'll take you in. And in those days... The guy who actually ran the branch was the accountant. The manager was the one who was out meeting customers and really playing golf and having a good time back in the good old days. Um, so I, I get taken to Peter and he says, have a seat, Brad. And he, he said, so look, let me tell you about this branch and the way I run it. We're here to look after our customers. We'll bend over backwards to look after our customers. And if you help me do that, I'm going to love you to death. He said, but if you don't help me to do that, then unlike the bloke who sent you here, I will take the steps to, for you to be dismissed from the bank. So it was a pretty hard first message, right? Yeah. And I went, whoa, that's a bit full on. He said, no, I'm just telling it like it is. We need to understand each other from the outset. He said, so look, let me ask you this. Are you the kind of guy who has sickies on Fridays and Mondays? And I said, what? He said, no, seriously, do you find that you feel ill on Fridays and Mondays? And I said, I, I don't think I want to answer that. <laughs> he, he said, look, just in case. He said, in this branch, we have an understanding. If someone feels like they're going to have a sickie, which is code for they're just having a day off, right? Um, they're going to let me know on the Wednesday. And then on when they let me know, I'm going to say to them, 
mate, I hope it's not too bad when it comes around. Or I'm going to say, look, I'm sorry. You're, you're not going to really get sick on that day, honestly. Because Jack over there, he's having one of those that day. Right? <laughs> and I went, are you serious? He said, yeah, 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 honest. And that's the way it works here. So don't test me on it. And there's two things that came out of that. Number one, I, I respected that man straight away for telling it like it was. And he just looked at me and said, look, I can tell. You're at that stage in your life where you're out having a good time. Thursday night comes along. You'll go to your discos. Um, you mightn't feel like coming to work on Friday. Plus, you know, you've got a big night coming up on Friday night, et cetera, et cetera. Do all of that. Knock yourself out. But just pay me the respect of letting me know. And if I can, I'll let you. Right? The weird thing about that was I never took a sickie when I worked for that guy because there was just no fun in doing it anymore. Yeah, he'd given me permission. And so again, he was in control. <laughs> oh, bugger, yeah. So it was more pleasurable to come to work really hungover and you know, feeling terrible and have everyone acknowledge that and, you know, in fact, give you a reward for being there than it was to take a sickie. The second thing I learned from that later on in life, um, I got to be senior enough in the bank where I actually got to look at my personnel file. And I saw the comments that had been made about me before I came to this guy's branch. And I saw that he had had to do an interim report on me two months later. And his report couldn't have been more glowing. This guy is the best customer service person I've seen operating here. He's wasted just doing this in this little wow. branch. And he was the guy who instigated me getting into a training environment. Um, and so I, when I was... When I was older and I sat down to talk with him, I said, how did you get away with running your branch like that? And he said, Brad, I understood in those days, the bank measured two things. They looked for money, money in, money out. So what did we have in deposits and what did we have in loans? And as long as those two numbers were good, the, the bank itself didn't really care two hoots about how I was doing it. And he said, I happen to work out that if I could get you guys looking after our customers, they would give us all the money in and all the money out that we could require of them. And they would bring people to, other people to us. And so in that, when I reflected on that, I realized here's a guy who's worked out. The bank's instructions may be terrible, uh, maybe just cut and ride. And I could be just saying to these people, you know, stitch everyone up. We want to get money in. And if there's any chance you can turn a higher purchase client customer elsewhere into one of our personal loan customers. Don't worry about the fact that they're going to be paying, you know, decent interest rates, just get them. But he never did that. It was, it was always look after our customers mm. and um, we'll be fine. So I don't know if that helps, but there are a couple of scenarios where I saw a man who recognized I might have the worst in terms of the instruction I've been given, but I don't have to deliver it the same way i just need to find a way and it links back to i need to find a way so that people will do things for their reasons and the reasons will be the reasons i hope to help this branch so, run it. I'm, I'm interested there's many layers to that story that i'm interested in um i don't want to lose them all uh the first one let's jump on the latest thing that popped into my head then mm -hmm. what was what was it that he sparked in you then that you started that you didn't take a sick day and you gave that job everything you had what had he ignited in you in that conversation i think the first thing again on reflection because a lot of this 
is so subliminal at the time, isn't it? We, it it's yeah. a feeling, isn't it? It's like that expression, uh, you, you may not remember what a person said, you may not remember what they did, but you'll always remember how they made you feel, right? Yeah. So it's, it's that notion that this guy from that first moment where I sat across the desk from him and he was brutally honest with me um, and made it very clear what the alternatives were. Uh, I, I, I just, one, I respected him, but more importantly, I felt in that, on, on reflection, I recognized he was being accepting of me. He wasn't telling me I had to change my ways. Right. He was just acknowledging, letting me know that you can be who you are, but when you step through this door, there are just some requirements that we have of you. And if you can deliver on those, you know, we'll be happy. The other thing I realized was that he played to my strength. He could see that my strength was serving customers um, and that I was good with customers. So he, he didn't worry about whether or not my, my till balanced at the end of the day. Um, so I think they were two things he received earned my respect straight away and probably earned my respect because he accepted me as I was and then challenged me to do the thing I did well even better. Nice. And so the other thing that I'm thinking about here, so in that example, you've had somebody leading in the middle, your boss, and who has uh, figured out what the organization wants from me. As long as I deliver that, I can run my show how I want to run it, basically. Yeah. Um, well, how about the scenario where you, you have someone above you who isn't even happy with that, right? It has to be done their way, um, you know, controlling, perfectionistic people, people who want to see every email and... Yeah. You know, wanna you, you can only talk to Brad if you go through me, that kind of stuff. What are your thoughts on that stuff? Look, my experience has been that unless they're in the same building as me, and I don't just mean the building, unless they're in the same office as me, they cannot be monitoring me every minute of every day. So they're relying on data that they're getting in front of them. And again, the example for that for me was the first time I was ever introduced to CRM, you know, customer relationship management as a salesperson. And the boss I had at the time said, look, and he did exactly what you're not supposed to do. He said, I know we're all going to hate this because it feels like Big Brother's watching us, but the company has decided we're, in, we're putting in the system and you're now going to have to log, you know, activities during the course of the day and whatever else. Uh, and it was a sales role, so they were act, they were actually um, capturing uh, you know, a first contact via phone, uh, when that contact, and you had to then put in when you were going to do a follow-up to that contact, when that contact became a, a first uh, face-to-face, and how many contacts it took to get from there to an outcome, whether the outcome was uh, we're closing it off because nothing's happening, or the guys agreed to go ahead. So they were measuring every facet of... Um, and you can imagine that us as salespeople saw that as as many truck drivers would see the devices that are put on their vehicles as the company just keeping an eye on us no matter where we are, the bus, yeah. right? Um, and unfortunately, again, as I say, the particular boss I had at the time basically said to us, I don't know how you guys think you can fudge this system and I don't care, but as long as the system is getting the information it needs and the guys up above are kept off my back, 
it's up to you guys to, but you've got to make, you've got to make it happen. Um, because if you don't use the system, you won't have a job, right? It's as simple as that. And as most people recognize, salespeople are really um, clever. They're creative, right? And within no time at all, we figured out, we can fill in this thing easy. <laughs> we can spend the hour, an hour at the end of the day, and we can just populate fields with just rubbish data. Um, and in the end, we can get it to pan out so that it weirdly appears that I have actually made 12 calls today. And yes, 12 of those calls, um, six of them turned into a point because you guys believe it's a 50% strike rate. And uh, you know, of those 50% that I met with, one of them turned into a sale. And it was always working backwards. So seeing how many sales have I made and then giving them the information. Yeah, right, yeah. Um, and everyone was happy, except it was annoying, right? To have to invest an hour just to do that, to play the game. And then I got a new boss and it turns out he had been one of the guys who had been instrumental in this system being selected. And um, so he sat us down and he said, so you guys are doing well with your CRM. And we said, oh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's not hard. And he said, yeah, but you and I, you and I both know it's bullshit, right? And we just said, no, 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 that's there, they're the numbers. And he said, okay. Long story short, he, he explained to us, he, he began by asking, he said, um, how many customers do you reckon you've seen over the course of a month? And it was, you know, at least 100. And he said, now, think back to the first customer you saw this month. What can you remember about them? And he said, I'll give you time. And he said, any one of you go first. I don't mind. <laughs> and we're sitting there and, you know, I don't know about anyone else, but I couldn't think of the first customer I'd seen that month. And in the end, I said, mate, I, I don't know who it was. I'd have to go into my database to, to find it. He said, no, no, you don't need to do that. I just want to make a point. And he said, what about, what about the rest of you? And a couple of the guys said, look, I think I, this was my first customer. And, and I think one of them said, yeah, I remember him because in the end, he's the guy who did buy something. Right? And we were selling financial services. Um, and then he said, um, now imagine if you're that first customer. How impressed would you be if the sales guy rang you a month later and was able to say things to you in that conversation that helped you believe that they paid so much attention to the conversation they had with you a month ago that you remembered it? And we, we were just confused. What, what do you mean? He said, well, for instance, let's say someone says, um, yeah, I'm about to go on on a three-week holiday with my family and you've just jotted that into your system and then you talk to them a month later and when you open up your system it's it you read and you go oh that's right they're going on holiday so the first thing you say to the guys oh look before we get into anything else um, i'm really interested to see where did you guys end up going for your holiday what was it like he said do you reckon that might make a difference to that guy and that made a lot of sense to me mm. he didn't have to say anymore i realized if i'm if i've got to use this bloody thing then I better use it so I actually get a benefit from it. And I remember saying uh, with one of my customers um, that that exact scenario had happened. He, had, he and his family had gone to Europe and I hadn't seen him, spoken to him for about three months. So I, I didn't really remember it until I looked in my system. And so when I spoke to him, I said, so Frank, how was, how was your time away and all that? And, and he proceeded to tell me about it. And when, when he finished, he said, Brad, 
I'm really impressed that you remember to ask me that. And I said, Frank, I can't lie to you. I didn't actually remember, but I did have it written down and it reminded me to ask you. And he said, well, I'm even more impressed now. He said, one, because you were honest enough to tell me that. But secondly, because you took the time to write it down. He said, I don't actually care how you remember, but the fact that you remembered is enough, right? And that guy proceeded to be a client of mine for years. And I think he's, I might've mentioned to you, I was, he was the guy I was talking to the other day who I hadn't spoken to for a long time. Oh yeah, yeah. He said, he said how happy he was that I'd made a call to him, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's, so, I th so the bottom line for that to me is that, um, and I've challenged leaders on this when I hear them say the things you were saying earlier. And I just ask them the question, is what I'm hearing a reason? Or if you actually search your soul, is it just an excuse? Uh, and the excuse is that you haven't had the guts to ask the question of your own boss to the point where you've got the information you can bring to your people and help them see there's a real good reason for doing this. And by the way, if there's not, then I'm not going to do it. So there's a couple of things I want to pull out of that that story then so again back to if i'm a person sitting um in a in a what you might describe as dysfunctional relationship with my boss who is maybe being systems driven or maybe just by personality is very controlling what you're suggesting here is that i find the courage to challenge that to ask why is it you want me to do this you know, why is it you want me to copy you in every time I send an email to Brand? Or why is it that you want me to go through you every time I want to meet with Jane? Or um, so very scary thing to do for some people. Yeah. Can you give us a bit on how? Like what what's help me navigate that? Because I'm terrified of doing that, right? I'm gonna lose my job, maybe. Um so again, there's a couple of things. I'll take that last one first. That if the thing that's stopping you is I'm terrified of doing my job, then you're basically now setting yourself up for constantly worrying about losing your job. And in my experience, the people who worry about losing their job are often the ones who lose their job. Um, I, I've, I've had to be involved in you know, redundancies, retrenchments and things like that. And I've been in teams where I've heard people saying, uh, when they've heard that, you know, there's going to be some level of attrition, uh, I just know it's going to be me, right? And it's amazing how many times it is them. Mm. And I remember saying to one guy, you know, it was you, not because anyone picked you right from the outset, but it seems like from the day you decided it was you, you started operating in a way that was so counterproductive that... I, as a boss, when I had to decide, had no option but to say, I just don't know that I can bring him back to where he is. And in doing that, I'm going to have to spend a lot more time on him. But why don't I save myself that by spending time? So that's that's number one. Is that I've seen very few people lose a job because they stood up to a boss if they did it respectfully, right? And mm. if they did it in an environment where it's not, you're putting them in a situation where they've got to save face and things like that. So that's the first thing I'd say is, again, it's about courage. And the second word I think in that is care. Do I care enough about the people I'm going to have to take this to that I do them the, the justice of finding you know, as best as I can? Right? 
But the second part of that to me is we often blame our bosses and, you know, it's that the Goldie Horn principle of when you point one finger at others, three fingers are pointing back at you. And that's code for whilst I'm blaming someone else, how much responsibility am I taking? And because three fingers are pointing back at you, it's much more significant, right? The responsibility element than the blame. And so for me, and look, I haven't been great at this all my life, to be honest. There's been plenty of times I've been a terrible employee um, or a you know, team member for a boss. But where I've taken the time to consciously strategize about that conversation I was going to have with them. So say they've done something that I, or they've asked me to do something I'm uncomfortable with. Um, with a certain kind of boss, I'll feel really comfortable challenging them straight away because I know we'll be able to go head to head robust. And at the end of it, he'll either convince me or threaten me uh, and that'll be okay. Or I'll get him to reflect or her to reflect and we'll you know, come to a meeting of minds. So a lot of this for me is how well have I helped the people around me become more familiar with the way another individual likes to work. So the guy you were describing who said, I want every infinite detail. Now, if he's someone using the disc language, if he's someone who operates out of C, conscientiousness style, and he just likes his ducks lined up nicely and he likes his pencils in a row and all that, then how can I, again, in a strategic sense, plan my conversation with him so that I respect that mm. without challenging it? and find, try and get his rationale for it. And then if I can give him what he wants in a way that could be different, if it makes life better for me, then can I propose that to him? Or conversely, if once I understand why that's so important to him, then if it's no skin off my nose, let me do it, right? Um, and over time, again, what I've found over time is that um, if I think about the high C type individual, if I've built up enough credits with them over time by doing the things in the way they like them done, there comes a point where they'll cut me some slack. And that's essentially do with trust. They've learned to trust me over a long period. And it is a long period of time for people who operate that way. It doesn't just happen quickly and naturally. But at some point, they'll almost say to me, um, look, give me your best shot at that. This time, you don't have to worry about all the detail because I, I trust that you, you will have given it enough thought anyway. And at that point, I realized, okay, we've now transitioned. Um, he doesn't need... And it's all about because people operate out of that, that mindset are looking to get things right every time, not just for their bosses, but for themselves. Right? It's, it's, it's part of them to do things properly. And until they're satisfied, I'm going to facilitate that for them and with them. They have every right to, you know, put me un under under the pump. Yeah. So I is don't know if that's the same. Yeah, me, absolutely. There's, there's let's a... stop blaming the boss. Yeah. Start looking at what am I doing that could be creating in him the worst, or, or creating in them the worst possible image of themselves for me. Yeah, it's a useful frame to reduce the stress and anxiety or frustration that I might have in that relationship to think about it as okay they're just trying you know what's motivating them to to operate this way and have some compassion for that they like you say they're a person who wants the pencils lined up and they they, they yeah. need 
they're feeling maybe insecure in their own relationship with their boss. And this detail is going to help them feel secure. I think that's a useful, that's a useful mindset to have to manage my own stress and anxiety and build trust over time. And it is, you know, and I think a lot of the time that's that's going to work, right? So a lot of people, I think, don't take responsibility and don't have the courage to have those conversations because they fear some catastrophe that probably isn't going to happen. Yeah. Right. There are some where the relationship is so bad or the, the behavior is, is so difficult to deal with um, that even if you conform over time, you might not get that. It might never stop. And it might, it might, it might be, for example, pushing you into working at ridiculous hours, being called upon at stupid times um, to do things, write reports and all of that stuff that just have no real value, but just to keep somebody happy. And I'm sure you've met people in that situation and maybe have been in that situation yourself. Yeah. Where do I go with that? If we if we turn if you got the, the tenor volume up on the level of challenge in that relationship. I still think it's important to come down to personal responsibility. If I find myself in a situation where I recognize, um, look, I have to be doing this because I need to keep this job. And it's pretty clear that if I don't do it, my job's at risk and there's nothing else on the horizon or the markets are not great for a person my age doing what I do, et cetera, et cetera. If that's the best I can come up with, as long as I accept that's my responsibility, right? I'm, I'm agreeing to that, albeit mm. tacitly or whatever else. But like to, your, to your, the bottom line of your question, it is that I've been there. Um, and I've shared it again. I've shared the story with you. I'm pretty sure where I had my, I was um, asked to come and to move, take my family and move to Queensland to become what they call a business development manager. They're working for a really hard boss, but a very successful boss, very um, a real winner, you know, and win at all cost type guy. So I kind of knew what he was like before I accepted the role, but I hadn't worked with him. And our only interactions had been very minimal at meetings. And he had always been very complimentary to me, which I found really peculiar because he didn't pay many people compliments. And so because of that and a little bit of, you know, the pride that comes with that, I took the role. But within 48 hours of being in the same office as him, I realized this guy is working in a way that is so inconsistent with my values that I don't believe I can sustain it. And if I start to put up with it for a little while, it's going to be harder to stop it. It's that, that idea, what you put up with it, you kind of not just permit, you encourage, right? Yeah, yeah. And he had a, uh, his habit each day was to come into the office uh, around 9.30. He never arrived early. He'd walk straight through, wouldn't greet anyone. He had a very scowly countenance. And later on, I, I discovered he'd had a terrible upbringing. Um, and then he'd walk into his office, close his door, and the instruction was no one disturbs him for the next hour. And what we, what we were told he was doing, he told us, was that he spent that hour going through the financial review, cover to cover, to better understand the financial markets. And he was a very, very smart man. 
and he would then share information with us that would help us out in the field. But on my, on, towards the, would have been, I think, the third day there, the start of the third day, I had decided, and I said to my wife, Leanne, um, I'm going to go in today and I'm going to let this man know that I cannot work under those conditions with him. And if he can't do me, uh, you know, show me the respect that I feel he needs to show me, then I'm happy to go back to Sydney. And I don't know what job the company will put me into or if they'll even give me a job, but without any safety net, I'm calling it. And Leanne's always been fantastic like that. She just said, you know, I'll, I'll back you no matter what. As you can imagine, when he walked in that morning, I was, I was going to use a terrible expression then, but I, I was very scared, right? Because mm. I knew what I was going to do, but I knew, I knew what his temperament was like. So I knocked on his door after he'd shut it. Um, and there was no answer, so I knocked again. No answer, so I just opened the door and walked in. And without looking up, he used the FF expletive off, right? F off. And I walked up to his desk and I just gave it a little thump and I said, you're going to need to listen to me. And with that, he looked up and he had a really shocked expression on his face because no one's ever done that to him. And he said, what? Uh, he, he, his language always had the F word, yeah, sprinkled through it. No matter what. We'll, said, we'll yeah. sprinkle it in ourselves, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, what the, you know, what's going on? And I said, you need to listen to me because at the end of this three minutes or whatever it's going to take, I'll either still be here working with you or I'll be on the phone to the boss in Sydney and I'll be telling him I can't work with you. And, um, yeah, either bring me back to Sydney or find something. But I'm, 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 not, I'm not doing this anymore. And I could tell he was perplexed. He said, what's going on here? I said, I don't care how you treat everyone else in this office and if they think it's okay, but I don't. So when you come in of a morning, if I greet you, I expect you as my manager to greet me back. And I said, yeah, I've been here. This is my third day now. And we haven't sat down and you haven't given me any insight into what it is you want from me in this, in this role. And I happen to operate from the premise is that I want to know what my boss's expectations are of me. Um, and by the way, what my expectations are of them, which I want to let you know if we, if we ever get to that. <clears throat> and he said, well, Brad, I selected you because I believe you know what to do. And I've left you alone because I know you know what you need to do. So why would I call you in and have that conversation with you? He said, I'm sitting here wondering why you're in here talking to me now when there's things you know you should be doing. <laughs> so, and, and that hit me. I thought, what? <laughs> he said, so what? You're not one of those guys who likes to just run your own race. You want me to give you writing instructions. I said, no, I don't want that at all. He said, so what do you want? <laughs> I said, I want you to treat me with a little bit of respect. He said, so what does that look like? I said, well, for one thing, I need you to get rid of some of this language around me. I grew up in a very conservative environment. I can do it, but I can do it at the pub. I do not like it at work, and I sure as hell don't like it being you know, said amongst women in the office. Call me old-fashioned. And cut a long story short, we, had a, we ended up having a lengthy chat and he ended up apologizing to me and saying, yeah, look, I'm just lousy at this, this, you know, looking at other people and figuring out how they work. I'm just so focused on getting outcomes. I said, yeah, I get that. And I'm really here to help you get the outcomes. I'm glad we've had this conversation. And we just had the best working relationship thereafter. But here's the kicker. Um, 
we were having a manager's meeting and um, in, 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 after the day's meeting, we were sitting around having a few drinks and I was with a bunch of the guys who were also his subordinates. And one of them said to me, Brad, got to ask you, mate, how come Paul treats you so differently to the rest of us? And I said, um, have you ever let him know that you don't like the way he treats you? And they said, no. I said, well, in that case, it's not Paul's fault, it's yours. I said, that's all I did. I just let him know. I wouldn't take it and I let him know that I'd be happy to walk. And then two of them said, oh, I couldn't go that far. I need this job. I said, well, that's okay, but don't blame him, right? You're, you're putting up with it. And I, I told them, I said, here's what he said to me. I'm not telling you what to do because I trust you. I believe you know what to do and I'm leaving you to run your own race. Right? I said, it's as simple as that. So to the long, it's a long-winded answer to your question, but it always comes back to me when I'm having this conversation with leaders and they're using someone else as the, the reason for their poor behavior yeah. is that you keep doing it, but don't lie to yourself and say it's that person's fault. Acknowledge that I'm do- it's back to that first thing I began with. That I'm doing it for my reasons. And yeah. the best reason I can have is I need this job and I don't have the confidence that I can get something as good or better. Then do it, but recognize it's going to come with a load of wear and tear that sooner or later will, will harm you. Yeah. yeah. I love that story, Brad. It's a great example. And a little bit of time left. I just wanted to ask one, one more question around that. Um, often, often, these stories are all true, real life stories of your of your experience, right? I, and that's why I really love and enjoy our walks together because it's it's not theory. You, you've always got a great example of the things that we talk about um, that you've actually executed yourself. Mm. One of the things that I, having read a lot of leadership literature, and I've got a a, a bit of a what's the word? a bit of healthy cynicism, let's put it that way, around, you know, often you get these stories in books and they always seem to turn out well and it, it always, you know, and I did this and my boss responded well and da, da, da. And I don't doubt for one minute that what you just told us is true. But what I'm interested in is have you got any examples where you've done something like that and it's completely backfired and yeah. it hasn't gone well? Yeah, yeah. Tell us one of those. Um, so... In the context of those people who operate out of the C behavioral style, right? I think I, I, so many of my stories you've heard. So it could be new for anyone else who watches this. But so I worked with a man, he was the accountant in our company, and uh, he was very high on the C scale. Um, and so he demanded things of me in my role. Um, and because I understood a, a, a lot about this, I was happy to deliver it. I did think it was a bit pain in the, but I, I gave him exactly what he wanted in the way he, the way he wanted it. Um, but that didn't stop him being difficult for me. Um, and he, at one stage, so he was a, uh, he's a man, he's, he's still alive, I know that. He's a man who came from a very wealthy family and he was spoiled rotten. For his 40th birthday, his parents bought him a brand new BMW 5 Series, right? Mm. Um, so that's the kind of money he had. And the only reason he was working in our company was that his dad, to his credit, had said to him, I am not going to just give you uh, an allowance. You are going to have to go out and earn, do something to earn some money. So he did this job begrudgingly, essentially. Um, and he knew I had kids and he obviously got the sense that I at least professed to love my kids. And 
he gave me a really, he'd give me a really hard time about why I didn't send him to private school. And I'd say to him, oh, I just can't afford it, mate. You know, I've got five kids. And he'd say, if you really loved them, you'd find a way. Right? And it was all right when it was just him and me. And he would, and I'd just say, look, it's easy for you. You've never known what it's like to struggle. But this particular day, we were in a, in, of all places, we were in Hawaii at a, at a work conference. And um, we were sitting around. I can't even remember how the conversation was, where it came from, but we were sitting in an open forum, 14 of us around a table. And he says the same thing, but in open forum. And he said, um, you, you, know, you go on about loving your children and all of that, um, but I just don't believe that's true because if you did, you'd find a way to, you would have found a way to give them the best start in life, which is the best education they can get, which is in private schools. And for the first time in a long time, I saw red. And I am really good at chopping people down verbally. It's one of my, <laughs> one of my gifts, which I, I don't get to use very often anymore because I know it hurts. Um, and I just went after him. And I said things like, uh, you know, if you're an example of the private school education, then I'm so glad I didn't send my kids to any of them because I'd stack them, any one of them up against you. And I don't care what the judging panel was, they'd come out so far ahead of you because you're a bloody waste of space. You know, you're a sucker, you're a bludger on your parents and you're just sitting around waiting for them to cark it so you end up with all this money and you actually think it matters. It doesn't matter. I just went after him like that, right? At the end of it, guess what happened? He just sat there and he looked at me and it was water off a duck's back because clearly what I, what I, my opinions didn't matter one little bit to him. Yeah. Um, and I realized it was that instant where I realized that was a very cathartic experience for me, but it didn't have, didn't change anything one little bit. But by the way, he did compliment me on doing my work well for him. He said to the rest of the team, you know, the rest of you can learn from Brad in terms of giving me your receipts and things like that, because he makes it easy for me. So I had met his need in that area, right? And he was happy to compliment me on that. But so here's the, again, this is the key point in this story. The lesson I learned from it was we got back to Sydney and a couple of days after we were back in the office, a woman I really like and respect um, came up to me. We were in the tea room and I was making a cup of tea and I could tell she was really uncomfortable. And she said, Brad, do you mind if I tell you something and please don't get angry at me? I was really confused. She said, um, what? what was that, what you did in Hawaii with, and I was about to use his name, but I won't, with this, this man. And I said, yeah, it was good, wasn't it, Jackie? I said, um, he's been writing me for a hell of a long time and, I, and he did an open forum. I just wasn't going to let him get away with it. And she said, oh, and you think that was good? I said, well, it felt good. <laughs> and she said, do you think it made any difference to Alf? I said, no, I don't believe it's made any difference at all. And she said, but you do know that it's made a difference elsewhere, don't you? And I said, what? She said, well, the rest of us, we're really scared of you now. And I said, what? And she said, yeah, we've never seen you like that. And I said, Jackie, you, you will never see me like that. She said, I have no way of knowing, do I? And I realized in that moment, that short you know, three minute burst that I really loved, got things off my chest had been so not just unhelpful, had been damaging to my stock yeah. with the rest of the team. So yeah, that was a fail, no matter how you look at it. You know? mm. 
but it was a lesson learned. And as yeah. I've told you, I don't lose my temper very often anymore. Um, because as much as it feels good to do it, uh, and if I am going to do it, I think first, is there anyone around me who this is going, who I care enough to um, worry about? Or does this person matter to me, who I'm about to? If the answer to both of those are no, there's no one around, and no, you actually don't care about this person, um, then I give myself permission. But it doesn't. It's happened so rarely. I've never seen it, and I hope I never do. No, as I keep, as I said to Jackie, you won't. I don't anticipate you will. But yeah, uh, and I think so. The, the leadership uh, again. I think you and I have shared this. What I've come to believe, and I haven't seen much written about this, so I don't know that. I only ever heard one woman talk about data that her mother had created for a. a, a university in the UK, in which after a lot of analysis and inquiring of people, this professor came to the conclusion, the single biggest element that will make a difference to how well uh, a leader can lead is the extent to which their followers believe they genuinely care. And then the question is, how do I demonstrate that to yeah. my people? Firstly, I've got to ask, do I really care? Or am I just here to make what I need out of it. But if I really care, then it's what am I going to have to do to show this person? Nice. Thanks a lot, Brad. We'll leave it there, hey? That was really fun. Enjoy that was time. fun. Yeah.